Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome, everybody, to the J3 University Podcast. With me, as always, co-host Luke Miller. Luke, how's it going? Good, man. Ready to rock today. <laughs> right on. And we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Dr. Eric Helms, Chief Science Officer of Team 3 DMJ, and Sports Physiology and Nutrition Research Fellow for AUT at the Sport Performance Research Institute in New Zealand and writer for Mass Research Review. Also, Eric has a, a few really, really good books on nutrition and training available if you want to check those out. And I've been uh, a fan and follower of Eric for a while. I think he does an excellent job of bringing science into the, the trenches and also knowing where those limitations are. So we have a lot of guys that start stretching the science into the trenches and into the empirical world. And uh, Eric, I think you've done an excellent job of like knowing where the research ends and what we could say about that. And then, but also you have a lot of real world experience too, because Eric is a pro natural bodybuilder getting his pro card in 2011. And I think you dabble in powerlifting as well. <laughs> that's that, that all sound right? Was that, that a good intro for you, Eric? It's fantastic. Beautiful. Couldn't, couldn't have done a better job myself and I wouldn't mm -hmm. have wanted to because I would have been uncomfortable. So I really appreciate that. Cool. So we are uh, venturing into this whole, you know, hot topic on refeeds. And this has been come, come about from like Bill Campbell's paper looking at his his more recent uh refeed research and then there was um jackson pios and his research group were kind of like digging through the statistical analysis and looking at some of the methods and saying they're like oh this refeeds might not be as beneficial as what they thought at least for retaining muscle retention or even uh maintaining basal metabolic rate but there could be some advantages to it but yet we've been doing this stuff for a long time these refeeds uh Back when I first did them, I, I was I was powerlifting. I probably had no you know ap application me, but it was Mauro Di Pasquale's cyclic ketogenic diet, and it was basically you run like a keto diet for I forget how long you do it for. Then you have like a day or two just high carbohydrates, um, and that 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 was that was a long time ago for me. There's always been some application of it throughout bodybuilding. It's and currently it's very much implemented throughout natural bodybuilding, pro bodybuilding. Um, we have you have refeeds in place, and we see benefits of these things. Like there's something happening, but we just haven't had a lot of research and evidence into what's what's the reasons behind these things, and how do we explain them? Is it just you know uh, is makes the prep itself appear easier, or is it actually mm -hmm. having a physiological benefits. So that's what we want to dive in today with you, Dr. Eric Helms. So if you have some insight into just, maybe we should just define for you refeeds, diet breaks, what are these things? And uh, just to, to get some, some basis around that for our, our listeners. Absolutely. I think you did a great job uh, teeing that up because I mean, man, Fred Hatfield talking about the zigzag diet. I remember when I first got my, my ISSA certification, like 15 years ago now, 16 years ago now. Ugh. Um, I remember reading about that and thought that was interesting. Um, you hear stories of carb cycling going back to the 90s, if not even the late 80s. Um, and yeah, UD2, 
we want to talk about uh, Lyle McDonald and before that body opus, we want to talk about Dan Duchesne. Um, it has been embedded in the physique world for as long as you could call the modern era. Um, and I would not be surprised if it wasn't around in some form before that as well. So clearly that anecdote has held up over time. And that's not to say that all anecdotes, I mean, there's a lot of things that have held up over time in various sectors that are not even helpful, but potentially harmful. But I think this is one of those that I've seen across a lot of different groups within the physique world um, with different levels of care about science uh, and different levels of paying attention and different levels of, you know, following tradition embedded into the way they approach things. And they do often land on going, there's something here. Um, that's certainly been my experience, but of course I do, you know, think, okay, that's interesting what's going on here. And that's kind of the framing I have with the research. Um, so yeah, we tried to define our terms here a little bit in a recent paper, uh, that, that I wrote with, uh, that was led by Brandon Roberts and also Peter Fitchin, uh, myself and Eric Trexler were on it. So it's, it's really just like the natties trying to just kind of like shoehorn this and make it our own. Uh, it's just kind of the, another, another instance of the overstep of the, uh, of the Illuminati movement. Um, but if you can get past that, you know, institutional bias, um, I think there was some, some usefulness in there. So there's a figure where we kind of described, Hey, here's all the strategies of nonlinear dieting all the way from like a cheat meal to a diet break. And we talked about the theoretical potential of all of them moving from least likely to have a physiological benefit to most with the more time spent out of a deficit. Um, and the, you know, the more controlled and, and, uh, and regimented it was kind of moving towards the other side as well. So, you know, cheat meals have been around for forever. And I think embedded in the name of the cheat meal, it kind of just implies that we're not necessarily trying to get a whole lot more accomplished than having the opportunity to eat a cheeseburger uh, while I'm dying. And, you know, like fair call, like I'm fine with that. And I think that's been worked in as a, I don't know, a sanity strategy uh, in, in, in bodybuilding for the longest time across, uh, you know, all, all, all sectors and all divisions. Um, and I think in the more modern era, um, when you talk about the, the utility of this as a strategy, um, certain things start to change. Uh, more commonly, you'll see that the goal is to eat at maintenance rather than necessarily putting yourself into a large surplus. And it's not about necessarily cheating. Uh, it is seen as something that should have similar levels of structure, control, and quantitative uh, assessment and, and tracking uh, that your low days do. And that's kind of like at 3DMJ, the way we frame them is awesome, is often uh, low days and high days, uh, because I think that uh, conveys a certain commonality between the thing that leads to um, different thinking and framing of the diet. So the rationale, and I will say it is theoretical at this point, because like you said, there, there is, uh, there's controversy in, in, in the utility of these in, in, within the evidence-based community, and I'd say for good reason. Um, the and, idea- And you probably say just lack, lack of evidence too for our population, right? Because a lot of this other, other research is more obese, overweight, and we just have just, that's just maybe just one or two studies in, in like lean, leaner individuals, but not contest lean individuals, right? Yeah, so I would say like, you know, if we kind of trace the evidence back, we have some behavioral stuff, which is pretty interesting. Um, and then we have some physiological stuff, but all the physiological stuff is adjacent to what we might care about as contest prep coaches and competitors. Um, 
So for example, there's a Durlewanger. I'm, I'm always sure I'm mispronouncing that, where it's like a three-day carb refeed. They look at leptin levels. They look at energy expenditure. But what they did is they took people who weren't dieted, weren't, weren't bodybuilders, of course, uh, and, they, and, and they weren't in a deficit. And they took them from maintenance to overfeeding carbohydrates and calories for three days. And they went, oh, you know, this increased energy expenditure, a small amount, and, you know, leptin and BMR 7%. Maybe this isn't worth, worth it. And I'm going, I mean... They weren't really dieting. This is, you know, this is interesting. This is an overfeeding study. So we have, that's like similar. Um, and then, like you said, we have a, we do have a fair amount of uh, what collectively falls under, you know, uh, intermittent fasting, which is different in the academic research um, than, than the intermittent fasting we associate with kind of like the 16-8 strategy of, uh, you know, just skipping breakfast, really. Um, and that encompasses a whole realm of stuff from, um, you know, the five and two diet, which is like I diet on two days or uh, alternate day fasting, where you like have minimal calories, if it may be none on other days and all that stuff. And there's, you know, hits and misses there. Like uh, if you look at the systematic reviews of all of those strategies collectively, uh, they don't do better than um, uh, just straight caloric restriction on a day to day, daily caloric restriction. However, is intermittent caloric restriction, which is probably, in my opinion, a better catch-all terminology, should that be seen as a monolith? And I would say probably not. Um, and that's why we kind of created that spectrum. Um, so like there is stuff on, on, on everything from diet breaks to refeeds now, but it is quite limited. Um, and the rationale why we set out for why it maybe makes a little more sense to spend, to expect more of an effect when you're spending a longer time in or out of a deficit, I should say, is because of the known temporal uh, aspect of being out of a, a, low, a status of low energy availability. So there are, it, it makes intuitive sense physiologically that uh, simply getting a lot of calories all at once would not necessarily have the same effect of having the presence of it over a long period. And we do see the effects of this indirectly on the hormonal system and some of the case studies we see of, of female bodybuilders. Um, we see this in some studies on uh, LH pulsatility, which is a marker of uh, menstrual cycle regularity. Uh, when you give one, uh, one big bolus of energy to someone who has been on low calories and they're starting to show signs of uh, menstrual disruption compared to uh, when you give them like maintenance calories for multiple days. And it is the latter that seems to start restore the normality of LH pulsatility. And I'm referring to some studies in the 90s by Olsten, and I want to say Luke's, but it might not be. It's almost always a safe bet if you're talking about menstrual cycle to say Luke's. So I'm probably just copying out. Uh, but there's a couple studies that kind of show that. Um, and, you know, it, it makes sense from the perspective of if we were to kind of put our armchair evolutionary biology hat on. Like, you know, if, if, we, if we come across a, a finite source of food, we probably don't want to upregulate everything in physiology that allows the tribe to have more children and then starve, right? Um, so that's obviously not like hardcore proof, but there, there are a lot of instances. Another one, there's a, there's a case study of a female natural uh, figure competitor who they talk about her post-contest strategy. Uh, that is, she was doing a controlled kind of re probably overly restrictive reverse diet. And it took her, I think, six plus months to gain five kilos. That's like 11 pounds, not much and did not get her menstrual cycle back for a year and a half. So was objectively in a surplus, put on five kilos, 
but it was probably in this kind of stop start fashion that we often see this kind of yo-yo diet though i got too loose i need to tighten up i got too loose i need to tighten up so going in and out of a uh, status of, of, of i'd say sufficient energy availability so we see that on the way down and we see that some echoes on the way up so the, so the idea is that well if i give you this one day or we, we give you a bunch of you know carbs and calories that'll have some effects but it may not have those knock-on effects on the overall system like a refeed or a multi-day uh, sorry a multi-day refeed or a diet break might have so that was our theoretical assessment now how that's playing out in the research is not necessarily as cut and dry um so to give a big shout out to jackson pios um and i can only go into some depth with this uh so he's doing his phd he's nearly finished on doing um, diet breaks in athletes who are reasonably lean and testing. He's doing a fantastic job. Some of the best research that's been done in this area. Um, and there's also stuff coming out with Bill Campbell. He's collaborating with Menno Henselman. So there's a lot of people looking at this. And the Campbell finding, I think, is a little more straightforward than, than some of the more critical assessments of it are. Even when you do an intention to treat analysis, even when you uh, strictly use statistical difference, significant differences is, is kind of the line in the sand, you still did see a dry fat-free mass difference favoring the two-day refeed group, you know, and the p-value wasn't even close to, to not being significant. And you kind of, like, if you, if the argument is, well, the measurement, we're not sure it could have resulted in just being water, then we have to actually assume that the method they did to control for water retention actually made it worse, which doesn't really make intuitive sense. So there wasn't a difference in a regular lean body mass, uh, but there was a dry fat-free mass. Okay, that's due to water. That doesn't really logically hold up for me. So we see this two-day refeed potentially having an impact on fat-free mass and some very small negligible differences between groups in uh, energy expenditure, RMR. But then I think the reason why Jackson has some, some uh, skepticism, and I don't want to put words in his mouth that we've talked about this, is he's not necessarily seeing the same thing when he's doing a full week-long diet break. So it's difficult, I think, for him, and this is a reasonable level of skepticism to go, all right, if we have this understanding that the more time you spent out of a deficit, it should have a greater impact, then why don't I see it with a week-long diet break, but it was observed in a, a two-day refeed? So right now, we're, we're, we don't have a good answer to that, but I would also caution everyone to not try to make conclusions when we have like three studies, um, because how many times in, in various areas of research did one or two studies show a false negative or a false positive? Um, and, you know, it's not until we're five, six years in and have double digit number of studies where we can see that trend. So that's kind of where we are at now. We have a physiological rationale, which is a great place to start that says, you know, there's that temporal effect and there is an effect of pulling someone out of an energy deficit. Um, and it may be uh, useful in the process of where, you know, in the end, we all got to get to the point where we got lines in our ass. There is no avoiding the, the spiral of the drain. And no matter how you dice it, you feel like shit at a certain point uh, and, and things get negatively affected. But can we mitigate that for as long as possible? Um, some of the anecdotal things that, that I have noticed is that when we use some of these nonlinear dieting strategies in women, they're able to hold on to their menstrual cycle far longer than when we just dieted them straight through, which tells me like these are not disconnected systems, right? So something is going on there, whether it has effects outside of that I think that's still up in the air, but I think that to me is, is quite interesting. And I know I've kind of jumped everywhere, so I'm going to shut up <laughs> a little bit and, 
and let you guys redirect my uh, my my scattered brain. No, no, there was there was flow to the scatter. Uh, I think it paints a, I think it paints a good picture of where we're at evidence wise that we've we've come from this. Definitely, a lot of this stuff always comes from in the trenches. Hey, we're noticing this. Let's go test it in the research field, and then we have some studies that have already already kind of done this and led us to this point of saying, well, let's see in these lean individuals because we see it, everyone applying it, and that's the what Bill Campbell has done because he asked real lifters, real bodybuilders. Hey, what do y'all do? Interesting. Let me go study this. And so now we finally actually have what was kind of like the first study that was a, a very applicable approach that we see a lot of people implement. And for those that aren't familiar, this uh, Bill Campbell study was, I believe it was eight week long, or is it longer than that? It was either seven plus an, uh, some, yeah. some, some measurement time, or it might've been eight weeks in total. Yeah. Right. yeah. So this, yeah. this seven to eight week period, um, one group for five days would be at a 35% calorie deficit. And then two days they would bring calories up to maintenance, mainly an increase in carbohydrate, which is very similar to what we do when we are implementing refeeds. Um, and then the other group just ran a straight seven day deficit, 25% calorie deficit every single day. So the, the calories were equated, which is a, a great thing because a lot of the other research we have, the it's, it's, it's not very realistic because sometimes it's like a, I saw one study, I think it was in, in one with females you're, you're mentioning, that was like a, a 90 kcal per kilogram one day feeding. Like it was this you know, enormous amount that would probably kick you out of your deficit for uh, a, few, a few weeks potentially. So, um, <laughs> so this was kind of like our, our first insight into this and uh, having more research. So I think this year should be exciting for our, our refeeds and lean individuals. And so we have some early evidence uh, of what this might do in muscle mass retention and, and have a benefit within that. Um, and kind of, we kind of have to step from, well, we have this in the research. Uh, what, what is the, what, how can we actually take that and, and apply it into, into what we're doing now? Or are, are we already applying it in the way that we, we should be? Um, I guess those, are, those would be the questions that I've brought up because I've applied it in, in many different ways. I've had these one large day refeeds in previous contest preps, which, um, you know, anecdotally and just what I observe, it's usually it brings my body weight very, very high. I have more days before I get back into that deficit. And also digestion is quite, can be quite disrupted just from larger food volumes, which I don't know if that's something that we, you know, we, we have certain things we're measuring in a research study, right? We're not measuring everything that could, could yes. be a potential rationale for why we would be implementing this type of strategy. So I guess, Eric, that's what I would bring up to you is that we have these markers, like the, the hard markers, right? Like lean body mass or body fat that you can measure. But what about the, the markers that we haven't measured in implementing refeeds for people that want some type of takeaway? Like, hey, if this doesn't work, or maybe maybe we, we, it does, we don't you know, have the best evidence for it. Um, what might be some of the other markers to measure in the studies or that we should be do, implementing before, um, whether it be adherence or ease of prep or digestion? Um, what, 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 have, what do you have for um, thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I like the way you frame that. You, you know, there's a, um, a really cool study that uh, Mitchell did out of University of Sydney where they did qualitative interviews. This is something that I think is, is probably too absent from the field of, of any type of nutrition considering how much nutrition affects lifestyle and has all these knock-on physiological effects. Um, qualitative research asks people open-ended 
questions either in person or to write down about their experiences. So the things that we can't necessarily quantify. Uh, and the, the analysis of them is that we look for themes across people and we present them in a de-identified manner. So uh, this, this Mitchell uh, questionnaire, I want to say it was done in 2017. Full disclosure, I was one of the participants. So my anecdotes and biases are embedded in that. I'm not like the only participant. is isn't just like, I'm publishing it. I'm me talking to Eric. <laughs> but I was one of, I think, a double digit number of, of bodybuilders. Most of them, I think, were, uh, were natural competitive bodybuilders. So again, uh, the Illuminati influence. But um, the, the reported things from the, that group of people uh, did range outside of their perceptions and beliefs around metabolism. Um, so they, they noticed things like um, more consistent weight loss, uh, which could be related to water retention. You know, that, that's something I think if I was really going to try to, you know, steal me in the other position and think, well, you know, what could my anecdotes being, be being explained by um, as a small side tangent. In the Illuminati community, like I talked about before, we've always been very dismissive historically of the idea of water retention. I think for one, there's probably a little bit less of it when we're not actually manipulating our hormones to a large degree. Um, and any discussion or discussion of water retention immediately kind of gets dumped into our, oh, are you, you mean we should be cutting water for, for peaking? And someone's like, no, I didn't even say that. And then, you know, you get the barrage of uh, you're an idiot and, and the condescension, um, you know, without actually thinking about it. And that's changed for the better over time. But one of the things that as I, you know, got deconditioned and I stopped drinking as much Kool-Aid, I still only have like one sip a day, I've started to realize like water retention does happen a fair amount. You know, like we look at these, these huge changes in body weight from, from, from carb loading and around refeed. Some people drop weight immediately, some people gain weight and you have to go, what's going on there? Um, and uh, something that Alberto describes, you know, to me, he'll, like when he was prepping me in 2019, he's like, we need to do a refeed. You look like somebody jumped you in an alley, you know, just like this, <laughs> I look puffy and gross and like, I just got some water retention. I have a refeed and there's a little bit of a lag um, as overall body, you know, water goes up from eating carbs. And I still kind of have whatever that stress response is that's making me look uh, like I was a victim of crime. And then it starts to, to drop off and I look far better. And it's the combination of what we think is losing some of that water retention and having, uh, you know, higher levels of glycogen. Um, so, I would love to see some greater analysis or more in-depth compartmental analysis of, of, of body water. I don't even know how you would measure subcutaneous water retention, but I think that would be very interesting because I do think uh, a common thing that happens is people will be paying attention to the scale weight. The scale weight was stall. They'll cut calories and they maybe didn't need to. Uh, and that will result in a lower energy availability, all these negative knockout effects. They try prep again, they include refeeds. And if they're one of the type of people that we see who tends to drop weight post refeeds, that refeed keeps their weight loss more linear. And then whether that's metabolic magic or, or something stoked in the fire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, let's say we don't know, but let's assume it is water retention. That just prevents them from making those additional cuts and they effectively get into stage shape on higher food with lower stress. And, and less, you know, worrying about am I, am I plateaued? Um, and I think that experience probably has uh, knock on beneficial uh, physiological effects. So that, that could be it or, or a large component of it, but we can't really tell that unless we can, uh, you know, discern that difference. So that's one little avenue I'd love to, to see explored. Um, some other things that I just, do notice. Just to touch on yeah, that before you, before you go on, because I think uh, a, a lot of people aren't thinking of implementing refeeds upon like 
maybe an accuracy of assessment point of view because I've had points because uh, I think a lot of us are very atypical bodybuilders that you push harder before you ever would pull back and you get to that point in your diet where you're kind of stalling and you can tell like fatigue's higher let me just push and grind because that will that'll yep. get the job done versus giving myself a day of pulling back and then the the mystical refeed magic happens and we we flush this water and you look tighter and harder and all the good stuff um and, and then that would have not prompted you to make that harder decision to, to keep pushing you this slight um, pull back. And you hear a lot of common things like, oh man, I, I ate this meal and now the next day um, my hunger's higher. Or yeah. um, I, was, I was hotter during that day. It's like, is there really, a lot of people attribute this like a metabolic increase and is that true? Um, or is it just, hey, you had more food so there's larger thermic effect of food. Um, and maybe there is some type of hormone signaling that does happen going to to higher food amounts that the next day those are still intact potentially that would be an industry avenue to to investigate but um, my, my thing that i wanted to branch off on what you said was uh it's almost a fatigue management strategy of increasing food for a day and dissipating fatigue which would have this potential water loss as well there's another side of it it's like what is the most fatiguing aspect while you're while you're on prep, is it the actual uh, training volume that's in place through cardio or weight training? Um, is it the calorie deficit? And you've mentioned earlier the total energy availability, right? So for those that, that aren't familiar, this is a, the amount of like basically body fat stores you have, calorie intake you have, and calorie expenditure you have. So you have kind of three components to this aspect. Um, and refeeds are working on one of these aspects Body fat kind of, we, we're trying to make it go down. So that's not really going to be changing, but it brings up the question of what if we work on the energy output aspect instead of the energy intake aspect. So rather than implementing a refeed where we notice fatigue is really high, because some have stated that train, like, like training volume is the beta, biggest driver of fatigue. If you just have a, a complete rest day, does that have the same impact as just instead of, you know, you keep your cardio and training the same, but you just eat more food. And because I've seen people argue, don't even do refeeds. We want to manage fatigue through training volume. You just lower, mm -hmm. lower your volume for a few days, or maybe you've been training beyond your volume. And so I'd love to get your take on, on that type of thought process. If you're noticing this fatigue and water retention increase, what, what are your thoughts on just lowering volume or training in some, some sense versus the, the refeed? Yeah, I, I think um, manipulating training is something that is often really not on the table to, with any kind of creativity traditionally in bodybuilding. It's almost always like, it's gonna be harder so you train harder, maybe we'll do higher reps and stuff that is, you know, you don't feel strong, it doesn't feel safe to do heavy lifting at a certain point. So you do more reps, you do more volume. Um, and I think it's almost sometimes this kind of like fear-based decision of, I gotta do more, I look small, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of psychology that goes into it, but, you know, traditionally, even if that isn't psychologically driven, it was driven by the more volume makes you leaner, uh, or makes you look leaner, brings cuts, et cetera. But, but nonetheless, it's very common to see uh, the struggle to maintain volume uh, and to try to train hard during contest prep. And that is like leg day when you're six weeks out is the, the PTSD we all share, right? Uh, in the car before you go in and <laughs> yes and you're like maybe if i listen to four more heavy metal songs then it's not going to be as bad or i'll be able to get through it um 
and you, you know, fall asleep in your car listening to Disturbed and you have to explain to your, your workout partner why you're late and it's just weird. Um, and you're like, I slept to Disturbed. That's crazy. Um, so yeah, like th th that experience, th that has a unique effect. And I think I have really tried to, what can I do to get similar training stimulus but make it easier during prep? And that is one of the hardest sells in our community where hard work is like the soul of bodybuilding. Um, that was my main impetus for trying a full body split where I would only have to do like one lower body compound, you know, per day. And none of my days really trashed me. And I noticed for the first time out of the four seasons I've done, um, and I did a few other things differently, but the main thing that I did training wise that was different is I had regular deloads. Uh, I had a, you know, a periodized approach and I had full body training was my kind of template the whole time. And none of my individual days, I didn't utilize a lot of cardio. None of my individual days wrecked me or, or left me with a ton of edema or soreness. And I had better quad separation than I had ever had. Uh, and it, it went from being the unpredictable body part that I would, you know, pray to gods I don't believe in that they would look good after my peak or while I was peaking to then I know no matter what, I've got my quads, they're going to look great. And they're my best body part. And that was like, that freaked Birdo out. He, he was like, you know, what's going on? Like, do, do you have some kind of strange disease now that has, you know, taken away your, uh, your ability? I, like, I, it's just weird. Like, why are your quads out? We're, 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 we're way far out from competition, you know? So it's almost appeared to change my body fat distribution. I don't think that happened. I do think it was related to stress and, and water. So I think um, I do use that, 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 that uh, perspective and framing when I think about things. And I kind of have a, a uh, spectrum of fatigue management strategies from let's have an impromptu deload, a day off, uh, a refeed, a refeed on an off day, or we're going to take a deload week with a diet break. And that's kind of like my, my nuclear option. If, if you just, you know, you, you do your check-in and it looks like you are, oh my God, you're, you, you weren't dieting for bodybuilding show. You've been in a concentration camp for the last week. What happened? Here's what we're doing. Chill out. You know, like you're reading every day is a refeed and, and, and we're going to take just, just, we're going to train twice this week. It's two full body sessions, minimal volume, just do enough to maintain. And I kind of see that as a spectrum everywhere from, you know, our regularly scheduled refeed and it doesn't matter what training is, just keep going. Um, although scheduling training around refeed strategically is a conversation we can have as well um, to all the way to easy week of training and maintenance calories for the whole week. So hundred percent, that definitely goes into my calculus. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's an interesting perspective because most people don't pull that lever at all. Mm -hmm. um, especially, especially training. Cause I, I agree. There's like a machismo, like animal, like you don't, you just keep training and you tough it out, man. I've had preps like that. Cause I thought that's how, yeah. how to be. And I had to be on the Stairmaster and there was, you can't just go walk outside and have leisure walking time. This is nonsense. Um, I might be gaining so, fat by walking and enjoying it. This is crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so I think, so all around fatigue management, there's a there's an easier way to prep and easier doesn't mean less less effective and refeed is just one of these tools that we we, we can implement which uh you know with with implementing that and, and you're having this assessment with your client and, and one thing that i've done i'd be interested to see like what what you do if you weigh in the individual client i'm sure you do on on, on which route to go for fatigue management with with a refeed so say you have two clients One's super low food, 
high hunger signaling. Um, cardio is just moderate. And they're like, my legs aren't fatigued. I feel pretty good. Versus the other client that's maybe they're dieting or more food. They're like, hey, I don't have a lot of hunger signaling. I'm handling this well. Holy shit. My legs feel like they're, they're stuck in concrete. And it's like, oh, we'll do a refeed, man. It's like, oh, okay, but my legs still feel terrible. Or is it the other person that's like, I'm so hungry. We'll just do a little less cardio. They're like, I'm still so hungry. So yes. I, I think, um, you know, taking in individual client feedback can almost maybe self-guide what direction you might head with making up this energy, um, you know, into a maintenance or a slight surplus. Um, is that kind of the route that you go when, with these assessments with your clients? Yeah, you know, the um, Luke, I, I know we were, we were on something. I could tell you wanted to speak. You looked right about to say yeah. something. And go. we're going down a new pathway. Do I want to give, I want to give you the opportunity here. So now you continue. We'll come back. Mine's just my, okay. my thing is the energy availability is where my interest is peaked with like yes. continued the process of researching this topic because for me, like in, in an AO fashion anecdotally observing, um, what I'm seeing is like a combined type of a process is typically the best result with the consideration of what John pointed out is the individual a little bit more like heavy leg, plenty of food? Is it like starving, legs feel fine? But a combination uh, change that's both nutritional and activity-based. And as we transition into, because like study under Bill, I know like the biggest thing he always struggles with is nutritional guidance or uh, adherence, right, with the studies. As we do transition into some of these populations, be a little bit more closer to what we considered contest prep individuals, will we see that Total, total energy availability considered within this as something that I think is a more accurate viewpoint of what's actually happening rather than just solely refeeds work or refeeds don't work because there's no consideration a lot of times for total activity level when we, when we read this stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said and it actually dovetails nicely into where I was gonna go um, with your question, John. And I, I do view it that way and I think Luke's point is really salient because when you come at it from the perspective of um, kind of body composition emphasized research, you know, kind of like the, like the ISSN crew, you know, which, which I consider myself part of, it's all good, not hating, um, which Bill is obviously a part of too. Uh, and you come from that as well with the physique coach or physique athlete mindset, you have this very reductionist view on what will help me get to X body fat percentage and what will be a barrier. And the conversation is often around like metabolic adaptation, uh, glycogen. It's all about these compartments and it's pretty reductionist. And you would be surprised how five years ago, and I include myself in this, energy availability was not something that anyone really even was aware of. You know, like the IOC consensus statement where they're going, you know what, the female athlete triad, we think it fits in here. And they're having this whole debate. And they're like, no, 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 we need to maintain female athlete triad. Reds, you know, relative energy deficiency in sport that, that it's, it's there, but everyone can, okay, well, the driver is energy availability that, that that's, that can affect everyone, but they're not even talking about body composition because back in the nineties, they had already established that women who have amenorrhea, it's not because of their body composition per se, it's because of them being in a very low energy availability. So they're having this whole discussion that's all based on, well, all right, what are the demands of your sport? Um, and what is your current calorie intake? And how does that compare to your lean body mass? And we can predictably find if we are looking at a, a very homogenous 
um, baseline activity in, in, uh, in, in the, like sedentary women, that's where most of this research has been done, that we have these thresholds that are decently representative of where we start to consistently run into issues. Um, so you can actually do an energy availability calculation by looking at your energy expenditure from exercise uh, and then your kcals uh, that you consume, subtracting that and then strapped to your, your, your kilograms of lean body mass. So you can have like an energy availability of 34, which means that after exercise is subtracted for what you, what you consume average for the week, you're consuming 34 kcals per kilogram of lean body mass. And there's data that's showing once you get below 45 in high performing athletes and below like 30 in sedentary women, that's when you start to see more consistent uh, reductions in like LH pulse or I should say irregularities with their menstrual cycle hinting towards eventual amenorrhea. That line of research, I would say most sports nutrition people, at least in our little body comp world, totally ignorant to. But what we were talking about constantly is this whole metabolic adaptation thing and the adaptive thermogenesis. Is it real? Uh, and everyone's like, no, no, Meta metabolic rate barely goes down. And then we're like, but wait, that's not all of total daily energy expenditure. It's neat. And so we have this kind of very reductionist view, but there is literally no debate on the energy availability side. It's just about terminology. How do we emphasize it? What matters? And it is 100% um, well-established, I would say, uh, that if you consume far too, you know, too low of calories, regardless of your rate of weight loss or what you're losing, et cetera, that there are effects and they've been shown in various populations of athletes to, to coincide with higher rates of illness. So upper respiratory tract infections, uh, amenorrhea, poorer performance, higher rates of injuries. So those are, those are known things that come from just simply not eating enough based upon the demands of your sport. So there's that. Then going back to what, what you said, John, there's the overtraining literature, right? And this is kind of like, we don't think about overtraining in, in, in bodybuilding, except for, yeah, that sounds great. I want to do that. Um, and, but in general, like if you kind of just don't even think about energy intake, which is something that I would say most researchers in overtraining don't, they look at, are you eating less or more is almost a symptom. Cause that's something that's typically not prescribed. Uh, it is, are, are your stress levels modifying your auto-regulation of food intake while well, we're directly manipulating it, right? So um, the overtraining research kind of looks at this more holistically as well. Energy availability kind of looks at it more holistically when we're very kind of just focused on, on these domains of, of metabolism. But the reality is, is that overtraining can be exacerbated by not eating enough. Energy availability is directly related to how much you're training in relation to how much you're eating. And then your change in body composition, I think, is, say, is the thing that we've really got that they're missing. So, you know, John, earlier when you said energy availability takes into account body fat percentage, I agree with you. But the empirical evidence is not really connecting those dots yet. And that whole line of research that talks about it just from energy expenditure versus, uh, you know, your intake per, per lean body mass, they don't see body fat. They, it's, that, that's a non-entity. But the reality is leptin has like a 0.83 correlation with body fat percentage. So in my mind, how could it not be affected by body composition, right? Um, I think though that there is probably a threshold point at which body composition does play, play a role where it doesn't matter how much you eat or how much you refeed, you're going to have your, your, you know, like you, you have a kilogram or two of adipose tissue on you. There's not going to be any leptin being secreted. And we've seen this in some of uh, Bill Campbell's research where they're looking at post-contest dieting strategies. 
And in the individuals who do get into at least maintenance or increased calories, but they don't gain body fat, they gain barely any weight, their leptin levels are in the toilet, their BMR is in the toilet, and they are basically still dieted despite the fact that they're not in a deficit. So I'm, I've been trying to merge all these concepts together to have a little bit less of a reductionist view. And, you know, Eric Trexler has talked about this as well. And he was saying, you know, the, the problem with a lot of these uh, nonlinear dieting strategies and refeeds and diet breaks is that it's kind of like trying to study bee repellent in a, in, in a place where there's no bees. Like we can't know if it, if it works. Like, yes, the, 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 the study by Campbell is interesting and these are reasonably lean people getting, getting leaner. But I would say like with the modern conditioning standards that we have in bodybuilding, you have a solid three to four months where you are going from leaner than, than, than most people diet to in these non-overweight studies to even leaner than that. And I think that's where there, there's a gap. And I'm, I'm not, it could easily be construed as I'm just shifting the goalpost. And like, oh, they weren't lean enough. Like, like, like the keto, the keto files were like, ah, but they weren't adapted yet. It's like, it's only four years. When are they going to adapt? You know, um, like if, if I, I don't want to shift the goalpost to the point where this only matters if you're 4% body fat, but I, I really would love to see uh, research in actual physique competitors. Cause I think um, it is pretty damn unique. You know, um, I could, I could see some other populations like, like wrestlers during in season versus off season or something like that. But there's, there's very few sports, maybe, maybe sprinters where, you know, you take people who are lean and they get, you know, unhealthily lean after that. And I think that, that has, we know that has very unique effects on, on, on physiology that this may be where this stuff comes into play. So that was a, a long rambling answer, but I think we do need to think of energy availability more broadly. Um, like what is your intake compared to your lean body mass? We need to think about uh, overtraining. Like this, hey, if we know athletes who don't eat enough are more likely to show symptoms of non-functional overreaching and overtraining syndrome, that's the one time where people lifting weights to get bigger biceps might actually experience it. And how much are we just going, oh, that's just prep. Well, it sort of does, it doesn't matter. Like if you just see this as this is the experience with prep, we need to manage that fatigue, that's great. But if you shift your, 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 your perspective a little bit and you think, all right, if I was a sports physiologist and I was seeing overtraining syndrome in an endurance athlete or a team sport athlete, how would I approach this? It probably wouldn't be a refeed, right? I would have other tools on the table because I'm viewing this differently. All right, if I was a, uh, you know, a sports physiologist who worked with female athletes and I saw, you know, you had amenorrhea, that's not just, hey, it goes with the territory of prep. I mean, it does, that's true, but what would I do differently? Would I try to get them to diet on higher energy uh, and see if we could slow down the pace? Would I be suggesting a later show? I mean, you can't always do that, but I guess what I'm suggesting is that we need to shift our frame of mind and our perspective to encompass these already well-established research areas and not just kind of look at it from the whole body comp sports nutrition realm, because there are other tools in the tool belts of those practitioners that are rarely used or rarely thought of in the same way uh, by, by contest prep coaches, even those who are well-informed by the evidence. That That's really interesting thought process. And it, it makes me think too, of like what you see out in the, in the coaching world is like, what is that coach's background? Like, where do they come from? And and maybe that's the application that they're putting into play. Like, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dietitian. So I'm probably mm -hmm. looking at like, hey, let's refeed everybody, right? Or maybe your background was some type of sports psychology and you're like, oh, they're fatigued. Maybe we should work on uh, stress management skills and uh, sleep routine or something like that. 
And so you might have a bias towards a certain approach, but really with what all we do with, within coaching, it's really multifaceted. And you, it's, it's, it's impossible. We're never going to be experts in every single area, but with, we have to have, you know, be open-minded enough and realize that there are all these areas that do influence someone that's doing a bodybuilding competition. And there's so much involved into it and so much that we have at our disposal to utilize for people that we do coach. So I think getting, you know, rabbit hold down into one, one area can really shut the blinders off to so many different other potentials that you could be utilizing as, as a coach to help your people get to that stupid shredded glutes, you know, for, for weeks on end. Um, and that's, that's where the, the literature lies. So we don't have a lot of it, like you said, Eric, in these like super lean individuals, but I want to dig into like your actual application of this and how you actually apply Because I know people are going to listen to this and say, okay, this, this is where this, this research and all this literature is, but what, what's my, what's my takeaway? Like, how do I know, like when I am getting lean um, to apply a refeed, what that might look like and what, what are the things that I should notice when I implement this thing in, into place? And, and maybe, maybe a touch on to Eric, the say that, say there is zero uh, effects for doing these refeeds, but yet we re, we do a refeed on peak week and we do reap benefits of that going into show. So some people say maybe you should practice that before you do it. So maybe just touch on that on, on the end too, but for your actual application the people that you coach, how you do it, when you do it, and, 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 and go from it from there. Fantastic question. I love the way you framed that. And I'm glad you touched on that because I was trying to figure out a way, a way back there when I had uh, tangented us so, so, so off track. But um, yeah, so the way I view it is I try to think about maximizing the benefits and reducing uh, any, any potential harm. So I, I used to be just like, hey, refeeds are evidence-based because I have a bias and, you know, I, I read the stuff that I buy into. Everyone's doing their, yeah, every, everyone's doing their, their two days or, or their, their one day and two days or whatever. Um, what I do now, based on the rationale and the understanding, is that with refeeds, I use them as a way to reduce the deficit over time. So I do think there is a strong reason uh, or there, there's a strong rationale and solid empirical data to suggest that the leaner you get, and the larger your surplus is, the more likely that a large proportion of what you lose will be lean body mass. So I would prefer to have someone dieting slower when they're leaner so that I know that they can only metabolize so much fat at any given time. And if I sink a large deficit and somebody's only got, you know, a handful of kilo, kilograms of fat on them, it's not all going to be fat that we lose. So I will often start someone closer to losing like 1% of their body weight per week. And they'll have, you know, one or two refeed days at most. And then as we get closer and closer to, to the show and they get leaner and leaner, I'll slow down the rate of, of, of weight loss by adding another day at maintenance. So that the, the target deficit on a day-to-day -day basis on their low days stays the same, uh, but the number of days they have in that deficit decreases. So I'm trying to slow down their, their rate of weight loss. You, I try do, to, do you base that maintenance on what they initially started prep at, or are you trying to kind of adjust that along the way for potential changes in maintenance level with body weight dropping? A little bit of both. So okay. uh, I think normally start with what we started with, and I'm going to pick on, you know, your, your low days only and leave your refeed sacrosanct. And then I will add more refeeds throughout. I do know that eventually I'm going from keeping them at maintenance to a slight surplus. 
I see that almost as like a feature, not a bug. Uh, but you may get to a point where you have to pick on the refeeds a little bit to bring the overall energy intake down. So I will see them as the, the second option to adjust. Um, so, I mean, there are some people who will plateau within the first two months of going from losing, you know, let's say a pound, pound and a half a week on a bigger person uh, to that's only half a pound a week. And they're not super lean yet, you know, metabolic adaptation, whatever you want to call it, reductions in meat, et cetera. Uh, you know, some people were, were in an overfeeding state and had an, an upregulated energy expenditure right before they started prep. And you think that's maintenance, but it's really, it's like this artificially high maintenance. So you take them down 500 and then they get into a very slight deficit, super common you know, someone who you have to push calories really, really high in the off season. So I think you do have to be agile in that way because you don't know if you're dealing with someone with a, uh, for lack of a better word, a flexible metabolism, which I really just, I, like, I don't think much has happened in BMR, to be clear. Um, but they are uh, more spendthrift for, for thrifty, I would say. Um, so that is very much a case-by-case -case basis. Some people, they just, they kind of just have their output and it goes down with body weight and not much more. And I'll get to some point like three months in and the refeeds, I'll bring them down a little bit uh, just to kind of keep that pace where uh, I want it as far as the rate of weight loss uh, weekly. So often I'll go from like one refeed, two refeeds to three refeeds. And I will try to have when I get up to two, them have, have them be two days in a row to try to get the benefit of uh, being in an energy surplus or not an energy deficit for multiple days as there is some uh, some evidence to suggest that that does something unique to just the overall calorie balance across the week. Um, and I use that as a tool to actually slow down the rate of weight loss. As far as diet breaks, I used to be like, you know, separate, I, like I had, I had a system that I created that was just, I think, easy to follow, but I wasn't like dogmatic about it when I had my, uh, my how to coach bodybuilders course and what used to be called the shredded by science Academy. That's now the PT collective um, where we would go from one refeed to two refeeds to three refeeds per week and going from, you know, one, 1.5% rate of weight loss of your body weight per week to 1% to 0.5%. It's, it's all nice and mathy and it makes my OCD happy. And then separating each one of those periods where you decide to add you know, another refeed is a week long diet break. Right. Um, and that's, that's a, maybe a useful model, but of course it should be much more agile. What I do in practice is that I will drop in a week long diet break when we hit a stall, uh, especially if I think the stall might not be real. So I normally operate off of a, like a two to three week uh, average of body weight to gauge whether we're going down. And I look at them visually. Uh, and I just think about the math, like how much could they be down regulating their energy expenditure? How much cardio have I, I given them? How many days per week did they train? And if I'm like, you know, all of my experience and, and what I understand of physiology says you're probably in a deficit. I will give them a diet break rather than give them a, uh, you know, another cut in calories. So sometimes like I see it as, okay, what's the worst case scenario here is they, they actually have downregulated that much. I give them a week off dieting. Uh, that downregulation typically comes with feeling shittier because that's, I think the big missing piece between the whole, I'm focused on metabolic adaptation versus the energy availability folks. You know, they have this, this spoke, uh, this wheel with spokes that go into almost every, type of, uh, or, or compartment of your body and all the different systems like, you know, immunological, uh, endocrine, uh, performance, all the different things we care about, they're all affected. And there's data to back that up from being, uh, in a, in a chronic state of low energy availability. So even if it doesn't kick up your energy expenditure much, uh, we know that you will feel less shitty from that week. And if weight loss then still is plateaued when we come back, 
you know, we got a good week of training. We got some fatigue management. Okay, now I'll go into a deficit. But I would say more often than not, when I do implement these quote unquote auto-regulated diet breaks is we'll get another spurt of weight loss. And it delays the point at which I would make a, uh, a calorie cut or an increase in cardio. Um, now, I don't do this only from a plateau. It's not like I wait until they're only losing 100 grams per week because then it would take eight months to get in shape, right? I am doing this based on are we meeting a target rate of weight loss on average? Because uh, I think you don't want to be in a position where you're babysitting the, you know, the fat loss process so much and trying to make it as painless as possible to where you're actually extending the time period to where that's not worth it. And I think that is to steel man people who are more anti-refeeds. That is the biggest thing you do need to consider is that there, I don't think most people respond so well to refeeds that it makes the same time course of prep the same, but you just get to eat more. Um, I have had experiences where it's pretty close to that. People who do seem to respond to this much better. Maybe that's an adherence thing. Maybe, I don't know. You don't get to know everything that goes on in their lives. I find I do better with refeeds and it seems to game the system a little bit, but I don't think I'm, I'm the norm. I think you do have to go right. I could diet them for five months more aggressively without any refeeds or very few, or I could diet them for seven months with refeeds and, and coming out of it. And then you have to gauge, well, okay, which one of those is better? Now, I think that, that kind of trade-off, you know, seven months versus five months, uh, and maybe having a net overall higher calories, if you were to do the average over those five and seven months is kind of the experience I have. I say it's worth it. Um, and I typically see better outcomes on stage and people, when they retrospectively compare those preps, which of course has bias, but it sort of doesn't matter because that's your life experience. Um, they, they tend to rate the, the slower prep better. Not everyone, um, but I think that is something to weigh up. And if you simply don't have the time to do it, or if you're getting behind the eight ball in terms of timing, uh, then I think you do need to go, right, this isn't the time to pull the refeed lever or, or the diet break lever because I've got three weeks and you've got three kilos to lose, you know? So I tend to do, do them in this auto-regulated fashion where I go, you know, instead of uh, cutting calories, adding cardio, if I've got the time, if we're on pace, I'm going to give you a diet break. And I would say the majority of the time in my experience, uh, that does result in another spurt of weight loss that could be just water weight dropping. Um, but the, the end result is that at a coach, I end up making a few less quote unquote unnecessary cuts in calories. Um, and that's kind of how I implement it throughout. So, so it's curious to hear you say that, especially with the, how you're approaching that start of prep, because it's a very common theme over in our realm to be very aggressive off the bat. Um, I know mm -hmm. some people that are 800, 900,000 calories straight off the top, no refeeds in play. Um, but granted, I think that providing context to the timeline was important because some people are going to hear this and think that, oh, we're still doing these like diet break things within 14, 15, 16 week preps, right? And they're, they're most likely not setting themselves up from a timeline perspective to be able to do these things, right? Because a week in a contest prep is contextually a lot less percentage of the time to get there when we're out at seven months rather than when yeah. we're like at the 16 weeks. So do you think that that's a large mistake we're making as coaches on, on this, the non-Illuminati side, if you want to say? Illuminati? Um, nah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alabama. I'm from Alabama. They accepted my pronunciations. Well, um, you know, I, I do think that the, there are certain things you don't, and okay, so first off, highly ignorant when it comes to coaching people who, who are on any you know, anabolics. My perception is, is that we're, 
in the Illuminati world, we're doing a lot of things to make sure that we can maintain whatever sputtering performance of hormones we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have the option uh, to add hormones to the body <laughs> exogenously. So um, I, I do wonder if like, like crash dieting has what I would define as crash dieting, losing weight super fast. Um, it has a lot of negative effects that are independent of, of how much you know, muscle mass you might lose because of that choice in terms of how much do you binge post-show, how much do you hate life, uh, you know, micronutrient deficiencies, et cetera. So it's generally something I wouldn't recommend regardless of whether you're on gear or not. But you can guard against a lot of lean mass losses uh, when, you, when you have support, you know, when you're enhanced. So it's something that the juice may not be worth the squeeze, no pun intended, if there's juice involved already, right? So I think if, if, you, can, if you can go right, it makes more sense for me. Uh, maybe I have, like the, and, then, and it lines up with my personality. I'm gonna push for 12 weeks, not do refeeds, not do diet breaks. I'll be losing at a faster rate. I'll be at a low energy availability. But the principal concern that the natural bodybuilding crowd has with why they're using these strategies of lean mass preservation, I have another tool that I can use to, to prevent that from happening. Fair call, you know? And I think, uh, I don't know necessarily that that is, I think from a, like a bottom line perspective, if we wanted to be like the ruthless capitalists of, of looking at the only thing I care about is my body composition on stage, um, then, then you can make an argument that um, there's an overemphasis uh, compared to what I do versus uh, someone an enhanced coach would do. And I think that's fair. I do think though that when you look at this from a bodybuilding career perspective, there's very few people who for a 10 year span, you know, from going from amateur to pro to competitive pros can suffer through every prep. Like it is a Rocky montage. Eventually that does start to make it just not worth it. And the survivorship bias we see of those who compete at the high level doesn't represent how many people are just dead bodies along the side of the road of them, you know, figuring out a way, a way to make it work. And you guys know this, you know, some people will get annoyed when we harp on the shitty coaches and the people who don't care. But if they knew the things uh, that, that we have talked about off camera, uh, you know, pushing drugs on people who have no business doing it too early, divisions that don't need it, giving these template diets that just kill people. And then if you don't make it, that's fine because you weren't worth it and you're not going to bring up my profile anyway. You know, I'm only going to take people who are okay with taking a bunch of drugs and going on these crazy diets. And then only the strong survive. Great. I still look good as a coach that shit still happens. And it's, um, it's not quite as bad in the natural scene, but it's still there. there there's a well-known coach I'm aware of who used to make his clients weigh in every night and they had to re- reach a weight loss target and they would cut water nightly to hit a weight loss target. That's crazy. That doesn't even make any sense. So that, that stuff is out there. And I think you need to pay attention to it because there's so many people who used to bodybuild, but it was terrible for me or ruined my life or, or I had to, you know, go to the doctor and get some type of clinical treatment. And I do think that, that like, even when you're like, well, I don't need it because I'm on, I'm on something that allows me to avoid that potential rationale. I think what you, anything you can do to make the process uh, more survivable uh, means you might be able to compete uh, later and longer in your life which is the exact reason I brought that up because I think our side can have a tendency to ignore what y'all are doing. And I think it's where we can learn the most about prepping. Mm-hmm. I prepped natural for my first four shows and some of the biggest learning experience I've ever had. Right. And I yeah. think that that's something that 
as we have this conversation, like I know some people will have a tendency to tune out because they think, oh, this is something that's just utilized on that side of the fence, right? But I think that it's, and it's used within our realm, but like it's not done in an approach that's as critical as like, besides John, because John's the know-it-all over here, but. Um, Make it up. Huh? Make it up, that's all. Yeah, and so that, that's my point, right? It's like that these are tools that we can be using. You just have to contextually be able to see where's the benefit, which is what, what you do a very good job of is, is finding the utility in everything that someone does. Thank you. I appreciate yes. that. That's, that's always been the draw for me to follow a lot of the natural competitors because uh, I've seen so much done to people that just drug use can mask shitty nutrition, shitty training, shitty application of all the variables that you apply. And then you have someone that gets to a point that they make progress, but they cap out easy and they've had built this body on drugs and now to retrain them in all these other areas, it's so much more challenging, but then not to mention the longevity aspect of it. Cause you know, I was younger in my twenties, it was one show at a time. That's, that's your focus. Now I'm in my thirties. I'm like, how can I keep being a, a top level pro for the next five years? And it's like, well, I need, you need to utilize all these tools to your potential. What, what are the naturals doing? You know, how are they maximizing? If they, if they have to hold on to muscle tissue, well, gosh, if they're able to do that holding on to muscle tissue, if you implement those strategies on top of being enhanced, man, you, you, that's probably when you see people growing into shows. Or yeah. what's a longevity aspect is using less drugs. <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, man, my thyroid's, you know, functions decreasing. Let's just take thyroid hormone. Let's take fat burners and et cetera. It's like, well, if there's another strategy and, and, and maybe have a little bit of a, a safer use model that can let you do this for years. Because just to, to let you know, guys, like to get good at bodybuilding, you have to do it consistently for years. It's not yeah. just to one show. So if we can take some tools and look at the research world and, and what's, what's working, why is it working and apply those to ourselves, that's, that's when we're going to reach our ultimate physique because we're able to do it consistently for years, years to come. If I may, I think um, there's a very similar calculus that enhanced and, 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 and drug-free competitors make, and there's just a slight difference. So um, there's no bones about it. If you look at all the case studies on natural competitors, which there's a ton of, and if you talk to natural competitors, you get to the place of being unhealthy. Um, so a natural competitor, if they're honest, they have to admit that they do place uh, competitive natural bodybuilding slightly higher than health. Um, and that they are, are willing to have some sacrifices in their health for their sport. And that's true with among all athletes. It's just a slightly different calculus for, for enhanced competitors. And even among enhanced competitors, there is a range of that. Now, I've talked to many enhanced guys who are like, no, that guy's crazy. I would never do that. That's, that's far too much, far too fast. And, and certain compounds I wouldn't even touch. And I think that speaks to is everyone taking as much as they, they need or would benefit from, or are they covering up issues? And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to good coaches on the enhanced side and they like a common anecdote that their clients have is, oh man, I've gotten better results, but I'm on only half or a third, or I don't even touch these, these things anymore. And I think that is a win. Um, that, that is, that is a really, really good thing. And it is 
a much more like hard, harder core, if you will, version of when people on the, the natural side go, yeah, but I was able to diet on higher calories uh, or I, I, you know, my, my post contest rebound was different, you know, utilizing all these various strategies or I, my, my stage weight was higher, you know, and, and it wasn't because I had a better off season. It was because I didn't lose as much muscle mass. Another thing I would say um, to kind of dovetail off what you're saying is some of these strategies get bootstrapped to the logistical nature of, um, of the competition schedule. So like when I work with a WNBF pro, unless they did really well at worlds last year, they have to qualify for worlds and the, the, the locations and the timing and where they live and how much it costs. Sometimes they need to do a show in like July and then worlds is in November. So they need to be in shape in July and they need to be in shape in, in, in November. So, you know, sometimes the conversations I have with other drug-free coaches is like, so, so do I put on some body fat after, or we just eat at maintenance? Like, what do I do? Should I, how good is this person? Can I get them not in shape, but decent shape, peak them well, and, you know, rely on, on their symmetry and muscle mass to get like a like place in the top five to get that spot at worlds. And then we really go hard at worlds. And those are the kind of concessions you have to make because it sucks being in shape for half of the year. It is awful. Um, and like most whether you're enhanced or not, most bodybuilders aren't just making money off bodybuilding. That's reserved for like the top five in the world, only on the enhanced side. Like, I mean, you could do every single drug-free show as a pro and win and you'd make like 10K a year and you'd spend 5K on flights and, and, and the registration and paying for your drug tests. So you can buy like a used Hyundai from your, your money in drug-free bodybuilding. So like if, if there's, you know, if, if you can't get off from your work, if it's, if it's something going on with your family, um, the, the calculus is almost always that I've got to make these shows fit in with my life. You know, like, you know, Philip Ricardo Jr. sat out of the, the Olympia one year because he had to go to Iraq. And, you know, for one of his colleagues, like this is, we're not really pro athletes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you, you know, we, we don't have the Nike sponsorship and, and it was, you know, putting us up so we can go compete in these competitions. So, you know, for me in 2019, when I was competing, I was trying to get my WNBF pro card um, and I had to pick my spots like, okay, there's, there's no shows in New Zealand that are pro qualifiers. So I've got to go travel to uh, Hawaii in April. Okay. There wasn't enough competitors for me to get a pro card. No big deal. I'll go compete in July in California. Okay. Didn't win my pro card. So now what do I do? Do I, do I hang out and try again and try to win my class at worlds? Cause I did get a, an amateur qualification. Like these are, these are the things that make uh, nonlinear dieting strategies also important. Uh, in addition to, I want to practice my peak week and I can structure my refeeds, which, you know, you brought up, John. Um, I think that's a, a really great, you know, feature of this is that you can, I, what I normally do is once someone gets in decent shape, I start asking them to send me pictures uh, the day of the refeed, the day after, and two days after, and sometimes three days after, if they're really someone who tends to like hold on to, to, to what seems like water. So I can get an idea of what does their loading strategy look like. So I used to be either like, oh, are you a front load guy or a back load mm -hmm. guy? Or are you like a, you know, a tapered up? But I basically kind of do like this, this modified back load with a delay of being in maintenance. This depends on when do you look best. So it'll be more of a back load. If you look great on the day of and the day after a refeed, then it's pretty much just like maintenance and then spike you up on, on Friday and keep it relatively high on game day. If you're someone who has a kind of a shitty load look and then you you come down and clean up, we're going to do this kind of mid-load where I load you on Wednesday and then tapers down into the show. That's kind of like me. 
I normally have my biggest load day on either Wednesday or, or Thursday because I look gross for a while after, at least from the waist down. Um, so all that information you get from using refeeds um, and you like, let's say it does come out that these, there's not much metabolic magic happening here. There's not much physiological benefit. I still think that you would, knowing that we can refeed without really losing much, once someone gets lean enough, I would start having them practice and get used to uh, these, these mock peaks on a week-to-week -week basis where they're still in the net deficit we want. Because uh, that makes sure that, I mean, some of the things I worry about, like, well, we know what happens when you go on a low-carb diet. It actually down-regulates your ability to synthesize glycogen. You know, and I, I think you guys have probably experienced this. Have you ever tried to carb load someone when you've absolutely crushed them for weeks on end and it just doesn't seem to work? Yeah, definitely. I, I wonder what's going on there. You know, um, I, I wonder if it is that their, their body's like, oh, I've been using like ketones, air and, 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 and hope and glory for, for, for energy expenditure. I don't know how to use carbs anymore. You've only been giving me broccoli for the last six weeks. <laughs> so, um, so I think there, there's a lot of factors that go in there that even if refeeds don't pan out the way I would like them to, and I hope they do, and that our anecdotes uh, seem to support, uh, that there is value in practicing those peak weeks, especially in competitors that don't have a ton of contest experience on, under their belt to look at. So uh, yeah, all those factors go into it for me. Um, and you know, the question of what do I do between shows when I have two months and I've already, I'm already in shape, uh, you're going to have to use some type of nonlinear dieting strategy, even if it's just eat a maintenance for two months, you know? Um, so yeah, I think these are, these are going to be concerns regardless of kind of where the research goes to some degree, if we're going to keep using carb loading and if the contest schedule keeps being what it is. I, I, I'm so glad you wrapped back around to that question, Eric. And you, you did it so beautifully. I'm like, wow, he just pulled right through. I was like, he forgot my question. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's that's awesome because I think uh, that went a different direction without you know especially on safety and timeline of these things because this past year has been heavily uh, deranged schedule wise from COVID because I started prep early in the year then Olympia was in December and then now you have to look at the schedule it's like well when's Olympia they're like we don't even know yet and it's like well when should I qualify I like well, I don't know, maybe I should just stay a little bit lean and jump in a show or should you prolong, you know, being, being that lean, bring body fat up a little bit. And, and what does that look like? And I think you bring up a fantastic point that there is something to this um, periodized dieting strategies. If we can mitigate some of the, the potential down regulations and systems or whatever, whatever it may be um, to prolong, prolong what we need to timeline wise, because ultimately in bodybuilding to be realistic like our, our goals kind of come before all all else like getting on stage being shredded but still there is ways to do this that have less health implications or can have an, an ease to, to doing yes. it and make it more enjoyable and that's what i find too through the years of doing this is that i've had preps where it's just it's it's miserable like you all, you want to put out that hell hell yeah every day on prep this is all great but realistically you have days that are like why am I doing this? Ah, uh, this is miserable. I hate it. And those are far and few between now. Like I, you can truly enjoy a lot of the process using a lot of the strategies, which um, for someone that's new and don't just punish them. Like if you can make them enjoy the process, like that goes so much farther for when they get on stage and they can look back and have this, th this value that they've gained from it and self-development and, and not, not just quit. Cause that might push someone to quit. But um 
Yeah, I, I think I think there's so much more to refeeds than just looking at an individual marker in a research study. And we touched on a lot of these great points today, um, and, and a lot that can we, we can implement and take away from this. So, Eric, I'll wrap this up. I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, and finally getting in front of the doctor, Eric Helms, <laughs> and uh, and exploring this topic. Do you have any? Uh, final words on refeeds for takeaways from any, or anything that you want to plug for um, where we can find you and, and learn more about what you do, what you put out. Yeah. So I'm, I'm launching the, uh, the refeed manual. I'm just kidding. I couldn't. 9.99. It's actually a subscription. So you lose access to it every day and you have to pay another 9.99. Uh, but it's really, it's, it's for your benefit. No, uh, in all seriousness, I, it's an honor to be on. I really appreciate the discussion. Um, I think the one thing I, I would suggest to everyone is that it's normal when you're drawn to science to be drawn to answers and that you are curious uh, and that you're more analytical and you like quantitative things. Um, most of the people I engage with, uh, they're you know, obsessive in nature like myself and they will take a limited data set and they'll wanna make a strong conclusion. And I think that is actually uh, fundamentally opposed to uh, empirical thought in that when we have a limited data set, we can only make limited conclusions. So I would urge anyone, whether you land on a similar side of the, the bias that I have or, or belief in the existing data or not, to, to, to kind of cap the amount of uh, conclusive thoughts you have on this, because this is truly a very emerging research um, area, especially uh, as we apply it to the niche population of, of physique competitors or even athletes. Uh, so um, I'm just really curious to see what further comes out. And I would encourage everyone to be open-minded to what comes out, uh, and myself included. I will probably implement refeeds differently if we find that there are limited physiological benefits uh, and it is coming down to you know, changes in glycogen and water levels uh, and psychological effects that will be a really interesting find for me because then I can plan these refeeds in such a way that I'm not trying to gain some physiological benefit that really isn't there or is not meaningful, but instead think of, all right, well, how can I use uh, periods of not dieting to the psychological advantage, to the fatigue advantage to the individual? Uh, and how do I practice peak weeks in a way that doesn't or minimally impacts uh, the fat loss process? So it would take a different form. And I think that's one of the benefits to where we can't just look at anecdotes because uh, there are certain things we accept. Uh, and maybe we go, you know what, the anecdotes are so strong. I know this does something. I don't care about the lab coats. But what if it does something for a different reason than, that, than, than the anecdote that you supply uh, says it does? And it may fundamentally change how you use it to be more effective. And I think that is a very, very common thing when we try to merge science and practice is that anecdotes typically fall short when we go, hey, I see this when I do this and then just wait for it, some bullshit mechanistic explanation they have no evidence for. And, and that part then makes people make poor decisions. They, they, they add a layer of, of, this, of, a, of an unproven story to it that goes, well, then therefore from that, and they build this house of cards, it's all based on something that they actually don't know. Um, when you just hold on to, I do Y and I see X, and you don't need to have that, that answer that, that you know, satisfies the OCD soul, uh, then you are able to be more open-minded and you can go, oh, I guess it was from some other reason and now I can be more agile in my implementation. So that, that would be my final words. And uh, anyone who wants to learn uh, to, to become a part of the Illuminati, uh, just follow us at uh, 3dmusclejourney.com and check out my stuff at Helms3DMJ on the Instagram. And that's it.
Luke, final thoughts? Close us out, man. Uh, that was fairly comprehensive. I'm not going to follow that one up. I think it's time to wrap it up today. All right. Well, for everyone tuning in, we appreciate the listen. J3 University Podcast. Talk to you next time.